daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, the 13th meeting of BRICS national security advisors and high representatives on national security takes place in Johannesburg, South Africa. What issues will be discussed during the talks? General election results in Spain leave the future of the next government up in the air. We'll bring you more on the possible scenarios for Spain's future political landscape. And the G20 bloc fails to reach agreement on cutting fossil fuels. What are the key sticking points? First on today's show, senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi is on a trip to meet with top officials in several countries including South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya and Turkey. Wang met with Kenyan President William Ruto in Nairobi on Saturday with both sides pledging to deepen Belt and Road cooperation. He's in Johannesburg, South Africa on Monday and Tuesday for the 13th meeting of BRICS National Security Advisors and High Representatives on National Security. South Africa is the current chair of the BRICS. A summit of the bloc's leaders will take place next month. For more, we are now joined on the line by Herman Laurel, the founder of the Philippine BRICS Strategic Studies Group, a think tank on Philippines in global affairs. What do you make of the significance of the trip and, and what do you think we can expect? Well, I think the whole world is very excited about this uh, coming uh, BRICS summit in August and uh, this is a preparatory uh, meeting for that. Uh, the whole world is uh, expecting uh, the breakthroughs uh, in these meetings. Uh, there's such a great uh, significance to all these, uh, the multipolar world that is forming uh, with BRICS as a spearhead, de-dollarization, there's so much to talk about. Uh, so uh, I think we can expect a great uh, deal of progress this year for the development of BRICS, especially uh, as well, we can discuss later the uh, no, number of applicants and uh, expected uh, applicants for the BRIC membership. Yeah, so we'll, big things are ahead. Yes, go ahead. Yes, we will touch upon the uh, potential expansion of this uh, BRICS block um, in a short while. But but first, let's look at uh, Wangi's trip in Africa because he has been in Africa uh, the whole weekend and he met with uh, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed on Friday and Kenyan President William Ruto on Saturday. And these countries have agreed to deepen Belt and Road cooperation. Um, so what do you think are the potential areas that China and African nations can work on to deepen their cooperation under the BRI framework? Well, it continues to be infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure to develop the uh, uh, links to the supply chain uh, in Africa and uh, develop their internal markets uh, as well as their export and import potential. So this is uh, expansion of trade uh, through the uh, expansion of infrastructure. This is what uh, uh, the BRICS countries uh, and particularly uh, with China's uh, infrastructure power uh, should be contributing to this um, uh, whole continent. Okay, so in what ways does China's engagement with African countries differ from that of uh, major Western powers? And what are the implications well, of China's approach for African nations? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, over the past uh, decades, uh, the, it was the West that has 
been claiming to be developing Africa, but what it has left uh, is just exploitation and oppression. It did not develop. Uh, it uh, uh, it uh, uh, engaged Africa in debt uh, in debt traps, which they try now to project to China, which of course Africa itself is rejecting and 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 uh, uh, denying. So uh, these are the things that uh, China is bringing to uh, to Africa, uh, loans and development uh, without the uh, neoliberal demands of privatizing uh, uh, companies of the state, uh, functions of the state, liberalizing trade uh, policies. Uh, and uh, uh, so this is a uh, three-headed dragon of uh, privatization, liberalization, and deregulation to allow uh, free, exploitative, free trade. China does not bring these, but China brings sincere and concrete uh, development projects, which Africa uh, appreciates. And uh, I think this is uh, clearly expressed by African nations when the West tries to press on with the uh, lies and the fabrications against China. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there's still a lot to do, of course, uh, but China is fulfilling its commitment. Yes, but as we know, the geopolitical landscape is currently marked by turbulence and major power competition. So how do African countries navigate these dynamics and what role does China play in supporting African nations' strategic autonomy? Well, the African nations are making it very clear that they prefer their cooperation with China and they have rejected several times very openly uh, the attempts of uh, Western countries to try to reassert their paradigm, their models of development and aid and and uh, cooperation with uh, Africa. Uh, so um, uh, I think uh, that will continue, uh, and uh, the relationship between African nations and China will continue to improve until uh, the multipolar world uh, firms up and becomes very concrete. Uh, so that's what I see. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's uh, look at the BRICS because uh, the BRICS meeting in Johannesburg is an important part of Wang Yi's trip. Um, so what do you think will be on the top of the agenda of this meeting? Well, what we are seeing, of course, uh, are the uh, items that are now uh, seriously discussed all over the world about the BRICS summit. Uh, these are, of course, uh, the questions of uh, expansion of the membership. Uh, we have new applicants. So we have uh, Bangladesh, which has written its uh, a formal letter of uh, application. Uh, we have uh, expressed uh, interests of many other countries, but including France, uh, uh, not not as a member yet, but as an observer. So that is very interesting, and that brings to mind the uh, greater and greater significance BRICS is achieving in the world of uh, geopolitics and geoeconomics. Mm-hmm. Yes, and actually, according to South Africa, over 20 countries from around the world have uh, applied to join the BRICS group, and um, an equal number of other countries have expressed an interest in joining the group. So what do you think is behind the uh, growing enthusiasm for this block? Well, I think uh, the, um, the uh, rise of the emerging nations is now uh, achieving its... Uh, threshold and breaking through to uh, total independence from uh, 500 years of colonialism and neocolonialism and the end of the uh, Western hegemony over all these nations 
uh, and I think uh, there is great enthusiasm for that. Uh, so um, uh, the African nations are very serious about this uh, breakaway from the past and uh, embrace of the future with China and all the other BRICS countries that are now uh, leading the change in this uh, global structure of uh, power and uh, development. Mm-hmm. So how do you think um, the potential expansion of the BRICS group um, is going to reshape global politics and economic dynamics? Uh, well, I think uh, now uh, the uh, vision that China has expressed in behalf of the entire world of a community of uh, shared future for mankind will come closer and closer to reality. We still have many years uh, to work uh, and build this uh, community of uh, perpetual peace to replace this 500 years of perpetual war from the Western uh, imperialist and neo neo colonial and neo colonial uh, countries. You know. So there is much to uh, re- rebuild uh, among us uh, BRICS nations. Uh, and as we grow, 20 and 40, people, uh, 40 nations interested in uh, firming up the membership of the BRICS, I think that has great potential in pursuing the uh, other detailed uh, reforms that we need in the world, uh, the reform of the global currency system, uh, the reform of the global trading system, uh, and so on and so forth. So, so there's a lot to be done. Mm-hmm. Okay, so are there any uh, specific criterias uh, that the BRICS group is going to consider when evaluating uh, potential new members? Well, I think uh, there had been uh, two stages. In the first stage, of course, was the uh, regional representation with the selection of the major economies, uh, in each uh, major region of the world, uh, that was the original uh, five BRICS countries. And now I think uh, uh, the uh, engagement with the uh, BRICS uh, philosophy or ideology uh, of the countries uh, interested in joining, I think this is this will be one of the criteria. The economic contributions uh, that the countries will be able to make uh, to enrich and enhance the uh, viability and uh, progress and future of uh, BRICS uh, and uh, the leadership, uh, the political and geopolitical leadership of the countries involved. So I think these are the major criteria. Uh, And of course, uh, membership in the community of uh, nations that are. are uh, just emerging from the past of uh, past era of colonialism, underdevelopment, uh, and and so on. Okay, and as you mentioned earlier, French President Emmanuel Macron had expressed his interest in attending the BRICS summit, but it is reported that he was not issued an invitation. Invitation. Um, so, what do you think could be the reasons? Well, I have no information scanning through all the reports about this, uh, and I was a bit surprised, but uh, I'm sure the uh, reasons could relate to one. Number one, uh, the um, uh, collegiality of the information that needs to be shared, and uh, maybe uh, uh, BRICS is not prepared uh, to share this with a potential uh, 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 questioning or critical uh, uh, country that is part of the G7 uh, and uh, 
Well, of course, uh, right now with the BRICS countries now dominating the global economy with 31.5% of the, its GDP over G7, uh, BRICS uh, will have to be more circumspect in uh, relating with the Western powers, which uh, have continued to show uh, some uh, uh, aggressiveness uh, with regards to this uh, development of BRICS and the alternative uh, new multipolar world order. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Herman Laurel, the founder of the Philippine BRICS Strategic Studies Group, a think tank on Philippines in global affairs. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. The results of a general election in Spain have created uncertainty around the future of the next government. No single party has achieved a majority of 176 parliamentary seats to form a government. The opposition right-wing popular party came in first, winning 136 seats. The far-right Vox, which offered to partner with uh, the PP, won 33 seats. Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez's ruling center-left Socialist Party won 122 seats, with likely coalition partner Sumar winning 31 seats. A failure by both sides to come up with a governing coalition could result in yet another election being called. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Tu Hongjin, head of European Studies Department at China Institute of International Studies. Dr. Tu, thanks for joining us. Hi. Um, so first of all, what do you make of the election result and how does it reflect on the current political landscape in Spain? Also, you know, because I, uh, <clears throat> it's a snap election, so uh, partly uh, it's literally uh, uh, also, you know, the purpose of the, uh, you know, the left party uh, to have, a, you know, a not so big uh, loose to the, uh, also, you know, the right wing party. Uh, of course, now it will give another, uh, maybe a difficult situation for uh, Spanish uh, uh, politics, because now uh, the right and the left uh, uh, win party, uh, both of them uh, didn't win the election, uh, absolutely. So now it they will give some, uh, maybe a gaming uh, for those two parties to try to find that uh, possibility of uh, coalition, especially with some other, uh, uh, you know, small parties. Also, you know, uh, it shows also, uh, even uh, for Spanish politics in the past uh, several years, it's uh, uh, left a party uh, to, uh, you know, govern the, to govern the uh, country. But uh, still, I mean, this uh, uh, right-wing or even some uh, uh, extreme uh, right-wing party uh, is winning the uh, uh, support from the public. Mm -hmm. um, so could you explain more on the challenges uh, that lie ahead in forming a stable and effective government? Yes, uh, as we mentioned, that uh, there will be a gaming between the uh, left and the right-wing party uh, to win some more coalitions or some more partners uh, to try to, uh, you know, get its uh, ruling uh, position for the government. So it uh, will give some uh, more complex uh, situation. So far, uh, even the uh, right party, I mean, the uh, PP, uh, uh, won the uh, election, but uh, not yet. It uh, won the uh, you know majority in the parliament. So it has to look for uh, some uh, 
cooperation from other right-wing parties, including uh, extremist uh, uh, right-wing party. Mm. But of course, once something happens that way, it will give some, uh, uh, I mean, narrow space for the uh, uh, PP to uh, have the collision because uh, this uh, uh, second, I mean, uh, winner uh, from the uh, right-wing uh, block is this uh, extremist uh, right-wing party. So it's difficult for the PP to win other support uh, from, uh, uh, I mean, the same right-wing party. So now it looks like even uh, the left uh, party uh, lose uh, uh, election against uh, the right-wing party, but it has uh, some more space than the, uh, uh, the, the PP to win the coalition from uh, some other left-wing parties. So it will give some uh, complex situation. I think it will take some more time for both the parties to decide which party could be uh, the choice of a coalition, and if, we, if it's possible uh, for those parties to uh, you know, have the collision with some other parties. Okay, and actually the uh, the popular party's leader, Alberto Fejol, expressed reservation about forming a government with uh, Vox, which is uh, the far-right party, and he said uh, it, it is not ideal. But I mean, without... Um, it, I mean, will it be even more unlikely to form a coalition if, if uh, without partnering with uh, the Vox? So how, how do you look at this? Certainly, as we know, uh, because of the uh, more popularity for the Vox, I mean, it's an uh, extreme uh, uh, right-wing party. So uh, if you just want to uh, get a coalition for the PP, uh, it looks like the, uh, the coalition with the Vox is more ideal. But as we understand that uh, because the books has some uh, extreme, uh, uh, you know, stance on so-called uh, oppose, uh, you know, the uh, migration and uh, they try to have some more traditional, uh, I mean, stance on some uh, issue like uh, uh, gender uh, uh, equality or some other. So uh, it gives a, a biggest uh, difficult for the PP once it. Uh, once it have to has to choose the uh, uh, works as a partner to have a coalition uh, in the government, it will give some more uh, pressures from uh, society, from other parties, especially from the uh, left-wing party. They will, uh, I think, criticize heavily on this uh, uh, so-called coalition. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the reason why the leader of the PP uh, have to. You know, uh, mention that uh, maybe it's a choice, but it's uh, not an ideal choice. Yes. Um, so, how might this election result impact the country's efforts to address uh, some of the pressing issues, such as economic recovery, social welfare, as well as the Catalonia issue? Obviously, as we know, uh, this is uh, one of the major divergences between left and right wing party is about the uh, economic policies. Uh, even as we know, uh, uh, before the uh, you know uh, mentioned this uh, snap election, the ruling party, I mean the left party, insists that uh, it, it tried to uh, you know keep the current economic policy going on. But once the uh, you know the new government uh, ruled by uh, right wing party, I think there will be some uh, change for the economic policy, especially 
maybe some more marketing orientation uh, policy uh, will happen. But of course, at the same time, I think that uh, besides the uh, economic recovery, now for the uh, Spanish economy and the society, the major challenges, including also some uh, uh, social equity and some other uh, issues. But of course, uh, regarding to the uh, Catalonia issue, I think both two uh, major parties, they shared the similar uh, stance and to have some you know, opposition to any kind of uh, efforts of independence from uh, Catalonia. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the, the popular parties win comes at a time when right-wing parties in other EU countries, such as Sweden, Finland, and Italy, also gained momentum. So what are the broader implications of this trend for the political landscape in Europe, and, and how might it impact EU policies and cooperation? I think it's a general uh, situation for most of uh, European countries in recent years, uh, how more and more, as we know, uh, the right, uh, you know, tent, uh, uh, you know, uh, politics. I think it's become because of the uh, there are a lot of, uh, you know, challenges uh, internal and external for most of the European countries. So the average people they felt unsafety from the current policy from some, uh, as we you know, established uh, uh, parties. So they try to uh, have some uh, change, but uh, now the big problem is there are also very big gap between the uh, you know purpose from the uh, uh, public uh, from public about the change and how about the uh, policy direction for the government or for the parties to in the name of a reform so I, I think that on this regard as we know the uh, right wing party usually they will have some more conservative uh, uh, you know uh, policy stance. So it shows a lot of uh, it shows a more attraction to average people than the Latvian party. So once there are some other more, uh, I mean, continual challenges and uh, still uh, some more failures of the uh, policies for some uh, you know establishment established uh, parties, I think there will be a long term uh, a long term trend for more and more uh, right and even some extreme uh, uh, political trend in mm. Europe. Okay, and then actually this uh, snap election took place shortly after Spain assumed the rotating presidency of the European Union. So how do you foresee Spain's role and influence in the EU evolving under the new uh, political landscape? As we, uh, uh, you know, observed that uh, even before the uh, election, the European Union side uh, showed its uh, you know, suspicion or some a little bit of worry about the result of the election, especially uh, once the uh, extremist uh, right-wing party votes uh, going into the government. I think it will give us some, uh, you know, uh, negative impact on the relations between Spain and the European Union. Uh, also, you know, especially when uh, Spain is taking the rotating presidency of the European Union, once there are some, uh, once there is a party in uh, Spain uh, who uh, uh, insist a kind of anti-European uh, Union attitude, once it is going to the, uh, once it is going to the government, certainly it will give some more problem uh, for its relations uh, with the European Union. But of course, I think that so far 
even the works uh, entered into the government in future, uh, I don't think it will give some more director or more uh, big, uh, uh, some uh, more uh, uh, negative impact mm-hmm. on its relations with the EU. Because okay. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Dr. Tio Hongjian, Head of European Studies Department at China Institute of International Studies. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Energy ministers from the group of 20 nations meeting in India have failed to reach a consensus on phasing down fossil fuels following objections by some producer nations. G20 countries released a summary document after several days of intense discussions. The document said some member states had emphasized on the need to cut back on the use of fossil fuels without the capture of emissions in line with different national circumstances, while others wanted to focus on developing technology to capture greenhouse gas emissions. The meeting also failed to make progress on setting a global goal for renewable energy development. The deadlock comes as countries around the world suffer from extreme weather, including severe heat waves and flooding. For more, we are now joined on the line by Helga Zepp-Larouche, founder of the Schiller Institute, a Germany-based political and economic think tank. Thanks for joining us. Yes, hello. Um, so first of all, what are the reasons behind um, the deadlock within the G20 on the phasing out of fossil fuels? Well, some people argue naturally that because Saudi Arabia and Russia are major producers of oil and gas, that they are the main obstacles. But that's not, in my view, the the actual story, because the developing countries have an underlying doubt. What is the motive behind this whole climate crisis uh, affair? Uh, so rather than addressing these doubts directly, they take the argument and say, oh, you rich countries, you produced all of this uh, CO2, so therefore you are responsible now, so we, we don't um, want to pay for this. But then you have, for example, German economic minister Habeck, who says, well, to, to the developing countries, uh, if you want, want to do what we did, meaning industrialize, the planet is finished. Now, that's the same argument like uh, President Obama had many years ago when he was in South Africa telling people if everybody wants to have a car, a house, and an air conditioner, air conditioner, uh, air conditioning, then the planet boils over. I think that's just the old colonialism which comes out here as an argument. Okay, so I mean, of course, the concerns of those developing economies needs to be taken into consideration. And also, it is estimated that the cost of energy transition is 4 trillion US dollars annually globally. So what innovative financing mechanisms or incentives could be explored to mobilize uh, the necessary funds for transitioning away from fossil fuels, especially in developing countries? Well, you know, the question is, should you do this at all? Because there are mm-hmm. some people who argue that CO2, CO2 emission trading is like the sale of indulgences in the Middle Ages. You pay that your sins get relieved. But the question is, is this whole argument a correct one? Is it on a correct scientific basis? And, you know, given the fact that um, you know, this whole investment in, into green technologies 
uh, is the great reset. I mean, this is just another bubble, you know, where at, at a certain point the international financial institutions decided to create a new green reset, a, a gigantic bubble, but it has essentially the effect to reduce the energy flux density in the production process. And there is a correlation between the energy flux density used in the production and the number of people you can maintain. There is a connection between the energy flux density and the relative potential population density. So it's really a Malthusian argument because this is designed that, you know, to actually reduce population in the global south. Okay, so uh, according to the document, some countries uh, want to focus on the development of technology to capture greenhouse emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. So can you tell us more about um, the science and technology behind this, this carbon capture? And could this be a major tool in the fight against greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, again, you know, carbon capture and, and carbon storage involves capturing carbon dioxide from large point sources like industrial or power generation facilities that utilize either biomass or fossil fuels as fuel. The gas can also be captured from the atmosphere directly. And then the captured gas, if it's not used at the site, can be compressed and transported via ship pipeline or truck or rail. And then it could be used in various uh, applications or inserted into deep geological formations which trap the gas for permanent storage. But again, you know, this is, um, it's all based on the wrong premise that that if if you assume that the argument for this whole climate change is what it's being said, or if is there a different motive behind it? Okay. And also the discussions also failed to set a global goal for renewable energy development. Uh, what are some of the challenges on, uh, that are faced in reaching an agreement on renewable energy targets and how might this impact the transition to cleaner energy sources worldwide? Again, you know, I hate to come back to this, but the, the real conflict is not in the field of um, uh, climate change. It is look for example what uh, President Ramaphosa said recently at the Paris International Finance, Final uh, Finance Summit. He said the G7 has promised the developing countries 100 billion per year for the development of all of these technologies and things. And Ramaphosa said none of, none of this money has ever arrived. And Mm -hmm. I want you to make a commitment to finance the Inga Dam in Congo, which would provide electricity for six African countries. And given the fact that that there are 600 million African nations which lack uh, uh, people, uh, 600,000 people in Africa who have no electricity whatsoever, we will judge your behavior if you are willing to finance this Inga Dam or not. And there are also other projects like the Transaqua project, which would provide uh, energy for the industrialization of 12 African countries. And I think that the real battle is between the countries of the global south who want to end colonialism and who who demand real economic assistance and don't want to be put in this green uh, 
paradigm which would really deny them any access of real industrialization for the reason I just mentioned concerning the energy flux density. Because if you only have solar and only, only wind, the energy flux density is extremely low and you never can reach the goal of becoming an industrialized nation, which is what these countries really want and have the right to do. Okay, so given what you said, I feel that this um, actually highlights the complex web of interests and priorities among uh, among different countries, right? So how can um, the international community foster dialogue and cooperation to navigate these differences and collectively address um, the climate crisis? Well, I think the real uh, key is development. You know, if you want to fight the desert, if you want to fight uh, the climate uh, and abnormalities, you have to develop the infrastructure. You have to green the desert, do what China did. China has reforested an area of desert of the size of, of the territory of Germany. And that contributes to a healthy climate more than anything else. If you if you want to stop desertification, you know, which goes from all the way from the Atlantic Ocean through the Sahara, Saudi Arabia, all the Middle East into into China, there is a tremendous desert which is growing. So if you want to reverse that, you have to invest in uh, production of uh, uh, new water, you know, like desalinization of large amounts of ocean water uh, through peaceful nuclear energy. In any case, the question of nuclear energy has is extremely important because it's uh, very climate friendly. It's it has a high energy flux density, and that is the way how you can solve a lot of these problems. So I think you know the international community should work together to allow for the development of every country, of you know having investments in infrastructure, flood control all of these things which are a matter of science and technology. And I think that is what the uh, developing countries correctly are demanding. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Helga Zepp-Larouche, founder of the Schiller Institute, a Germany-based political and economic think tank. This is World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. China has outpaced the U.S. in the growth of unicorn companies for the first time in three years. This signals resilience within China's economy despite global uncertainties. Unicorns are startup companies valued at $1 billion or more that are not publicly traded. As tracked by Forbes, 24 new unicorns emerged in China in the first half of this year, compared with 22 in the U.S. and 7 in Europe. For more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Andy Mark, a senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. So Andy, first of all, we've seen China outpace the U.S. in the first half of this year when it comes to the new unicorn companies. So why is that? Well, I think there's three main reasons, Zhao Yang. So first of all, there's uh, China has uh, an enormous reservoir of technical talent. So it produces uh, by far the largest number of STEM graduates, science, technology, engineering, and management. Um, and this is the vital input into any kind of technological innovation. Second, China, of course, has an enormous and growing market. So that also is important. And then finally, uh, there's government 
uh, policies, government incentives that encourage technological innovation. And I think, uh, structurally speaking, these are the main reasons that we see uh, this growing number of Chinese unicorns. Mm. So as tracked by Forbes, 24 new unicorns emerged in China in the first half of this year compared with uh, 22 in the United States and seven in Europe. And China and the U.S. account for 70% of the global total unicorns. So what does it tell us? Well, I think it tells us a couple things, Zhao Yang. So uh, first of all, this is a largely two-horse race. While Europe, other parts of the world will have made and, of course, will continue to make contributions um, in the area of tech uh, innovation and uh, the commercialization of technology, the U.S. and China, because of the depth of the talent pool, the market size, uh, will lead. Now, what's important to also point out here is that the U.S. has had enormous historical advantages here. Um, after World War II in particular, uh, it enjoyed a period of unprecedented prosperity, detracted some of the most talented people around the world. Um, but that was the past. Looking ahead, I think we can expect China's lead uh, to become even wider, again, for these reasons that I cited. Uh, the educational system in China, uh, the capacity for diligence, hard work that is so important to master science and technology. But that also combined with creativity, a risk, a willingness to take risks, a willingness to try new things. And we put those two uh, seemingly disparate qualities together. Um, I think we can expect, uh, again, many, many more successful technology companies from China. Mm. And Chinese unicorns companies have, uh, you know, strong tech features. So tell us more. And what does it tell us about Chinese companies' innovation capability and the entrepreneurship? Well, I think, you know, as we've seen, um, Zhao Yang, um, Chinese culture for thousands of years has valued, um, rewarded, diligence, persistence, perseverance, um, as well as learning. So education in this very Confucian sense. But at the same time, we've also seen uh, how resourceful and pragmatic many Chinese people are. So when you combine those two, again, I think it's not surprising that we see so many successful companies uh, from Huawei, uh, Tencent, BGI, um, et cetera. I mean, it's a very, very long list, uh, and that's only going to get longer because of, of these innate qualities, but combined with the large growing market size and government policies. Mm. And at the moment, when it comes to unicorns, most of them are in sectors like clean energy, like EV, electric vehicles, chip making, and healthcare. So how do you explain that? And why in these industries and sectors we are seeing more unicorn companies emerge? Well, I think we are definitely seeing a major shift in where entrepreneurial energy in China is directed. So we saw in the earlier era of the internet days, of course, many consumer-facing companies. And these uh, delivered a lot of value to consumers, uh, made 
VCs, very wealthy, created a number of very successful entrepreneurs as well. But because of the global change, especially in geopolitics, as well as I think uh, China's uh, development needs that have changed, we see this emphasis on things like you mentioned, EV, uh, electric vehicles, um, other types of hard tech, semiconductors, of course, uh, quantum computing, nanomaterials. Um, because these are seen as uh, laying the foundation for the next stage of China's development. So again, I think what makes China unique uh, is not only its large uh, and talented technical uh, talent pool and the big market, but the government's ability to effectively direct this energy towards areas that benefit not only the country, but I think the world overall, as we're seeing with electric vehicles, that mm. it seemed that overnight, you know, according to some Western uh, observers, that China went from nothing in the global EV market to becoming uh, not only an important player, but perhaps even a market leader uh, in places like Europe. So I think we should not be surprised if we see breakthroughs in other areas uh, as well in the years ahead. Mm. Uh, what environment do you think is needed to encourage and protect startups and innovations for the private sector? Well, I think, of course, confidence is very important. And this is something we see the Chinese government now emphasizing uh, after COVID that confidence not only amongst consumers, but amongst businesses and investors uh, needs to be uh, strengthened and I think uh, further uh, developed. And this is a necessary step. I think other things the government is doing in terms of specific, uh, I guess we could think of them as fiscal measures. There are multiple things that need to be done, but uh, I think strengthening confidence is, mm. is an important part. So looking more globally, we're not seeing so many of these unicorn companies are making the move towards listing on the stock market. So do you think it would be good for the markets and also for investors if there were more? Well, the usual investment cycle for technology companies is that they start, uh, quote unquote, in a garage, uh, metaphorically speaking, they raise private money, venture capital money, and then they IPO or go public. And there's important reasons for that. So, you know, unless something profoundly changes in this process, um, any lack of current IPOs is likely just to be a temporary phenomenon. And of course, um, public listings depend on market conditions. They also depend on prevailing regulations, um, a number of factors. And it's not surprising at all to see uh, cycles of boom and bust when it comes to technology IPOs, both in terms of the volume and in terms of the pricing. That's Andy Mark, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yan. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. This is World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. The 31st summer edition of the World University Games is set to kick off this week in Chengdu. Chinese President Xi Jinping will attend the opening ceremony. President Xi will also hold a welcome banquet and bilateral events for foreign leaders in attending the opening ceremony and visiting China. 
For more, we are now joined on the line by Paul Doan, founder of Eversports. Uh, Mr. Doan, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, so, what are the key highlights and expectations for this edition of the World University Games? Well, I think it's very important to come back to the very basics about the university games or university ad is it it happens every once every two years instead of four as we're used to the olympics and that would mean that you don't see repeated phases i mean athletes coming back to the university ad after two years because they are students the university games are supposed to be participated by student athletes and for example, if the majority of the student athletes are undergraduate and they don't have enough time to participate in more than two editions of the university ad. So what I mean is from 2021 to 2023 over the pandemic, very un unfortunately, the games have been you know, postponed by two years. So some athletes who were supposed to be here two years ago may have to give up because they graduated. Mm -hmm. And then, but at the same time, we are welcoming some new ones, although we, we don't know who, who they were, I mean, two years ago and now the differences, but we know that they are different people. Uh, that's the pace of the university games. It happens once every two years. The same with the winter edition and also, of course, with the summer edition. So I think, yeah, we want to, we don't necessarily know the faces very well, but we want to see their display of how well they have been trying to stay fit and try to overcome all the challenges over the pandemic years and uh, how they will demonstrate their excellence in both mind and body. Body and mind are the two themes of the FISU University Games. Yes, so are there any uh, particular athletes um, that's gonna participate in these games that you're closely following? Because as we know, there are several young athletes um, that are quite popular in China that will participate in the games, right? Yeah, but you know, I, I also, because I have been following or cover, even covering uh, university games, Asian games, and Olympic games over the years. I want to tell, I hope that people can tell the university ad from the youth Olympic games. The university ad are different from the Olympic games targeting youth. There is a youth edition of the Olympics already. So the university ad don't necessarily serve as a cradle for future stars. Although back in 1993, was when I was covering the university games in Buffalo, New York, there were some, uh, you know, potential big game, big names like Charles Barkley and Carl Malone. But back then, when they were playing the university games, nobody knows who, who they are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, maybe in next year or in the future or during the Olympics, we will see, aha, uh, I, I know these names. They, they came to Chengdu when they were less known. So we want to see that Chengdu actually cater to and also presented the opportunity for future stars. Uh, but if you ask me any particular names that I follow, maybe maybe women's basketball center Han Xu, mm -hmm. 
uh, who, who became an MVP back in Asia Cup a, a, a couple of weeks ago. And then she has to fly back to New York to participate in the WNBA games. I would be very curious about how she would try to balance between her contribution to the team and staying fit for the the future challenges. Okay, so let's talk about uh, the city Chengdu because um, it has been chosen as the host city for this sporting event. What are some of the unique factors that makes Chengdu an ideal location for hosting those games? And how has the city prepared to welcome athletes and spectators from around the world? Right, yep. Uh, when when you mention Chengdu, like we mentioned Hangzhou, we actually would try to add Zhejiang for the Asian Games and Chengdu as well. If you mention Sichuan, mm-hmm. it would be a much more familiar name for the rest of the world uh, because of the cuisine. And and it's been quite difficult. And we we have a lot of sympathies for Chengdu that you know two more years uh, doing nothing or as a slower uh, preparation for the games will be very, very difficult because the cost will only increase instead of decrease. And uh, Chengdu should be very proud of itself, uh, very proud of its own past and history and culture. But at the same time, when the university games decide to come back to the country for the third time, because back in 2001, it was Beijing, and 2011, it was Shenzhen, and it was supposed to be 2021 in in Chengdu, but now uh, 2023, I think that means that there is a big country already very experienced in hosting the Olympic Games, the University Games, the Asian Games, a lot of sporting mega uh, multiple sports sporting events with experience because the human resources are here, can be shared, can move from Beijing, from Shenzhen to Chengdu. And at the same time, we cultivate new talents. So that's the uniqueness that uh, the rest of the world or the participants in the games will feel quite relaxed and confident when you know that there is a country behind Chengdu. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you, Paul Don, founder of Ever Sports. Thank you so much for joining us. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. A quick recap of today's headlines. The 13th meeting of BRICS National Security Advisors and High Representatives on National Security takes place in Johannesburg, South Africa. General election results in Spain leave the future of the next government up in the air. And G20 bloc fails to reach agreement on cutting fossil fuels. Also, the 31st summer edition of the World University Games to kick off in Chengdu. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. And you can follow us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Thank you.